0: race fans and welcome to another edition of the pittsburgh racing now podcast i am your host scott stiller thanks for finding us we hope everyone is safe and healthy coming up on this week's podcast we're talking with motorsports public relations veteran and author jade gers about the late john andretti's autobiography racer we'll also introduce you to sarah price she'll be driving for chip Ganassi's new extreme e-program we're also talking NASCAR with Jamie Little of Fox Sports, we're talking IndyCar with Nick Yeoman of the IndyCar Radio Network, and we're talking local racing with our own Lou Long. First up, we had an opportunity to talk with the first driver hired for Extreme E-Competition and the first female driver in the history of Chip Ganassi Racing. Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast, the newest driver for Chip Ganassi Racing, Sarah Price, who is the first driver named to the Extreme E program. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So tell us about yourself. How did Sarah Price become a racer?
1: Well, I started racing motocross when I was eight years old. Um, I went all through the ranks and turned professional when I was 16. I then became the first female on Monster Energy uh, Factory Kawasaki, uh, medaled in X Games, had a great career on two wheels, then I transferred over to four wheels, where I got into side by side racing and a Polaris Razor. and that escalated as well, and it turned into racing Stadium Super Trucks, and then now Trophy Trucks, and now we're going to be racing extreme meat.
0: So what attracted you to fossil fuel sports?
1: Um, well, actually, I didn't even know about Extreme until a few months ago when I got approached by Shiskanassi. And uh, yeah, it's been a joy getting to learn about the series and what they represent and the vehicle we're going to be racing. You know, it's, it's a complete electric vehicle and equivalent to about 500 horsepower, which is going to be something really awesome to get behind the wheel of. And it's going to be some good racing.
0: What's interesting about electric power is that instant torque, and I, you know, I try and tell some of my gearhead buddies, and and people around the racing world that I say, if you've never been behind the wheel of something electric, when you step on that throttle and it just launches you, it's it's different than it is a typical combustion engine where you have to get it wound up to get it, you know, to get the performance out of it. So, I think that's going to be something that'll really be eye-catching to race fans.
1: Yeah, most definitely. You know, I come from off-road racing, so I think that's going to be a good strength of mine is finding the traction. You know, I'm used to loose surfaces, so having that instant torque, it's already going to break traction very easily. So, that's going to be, I think, uh, one of the most important things, driving one of them is trying to find traction constantly because, you know, it's going to be pretty powerful right off the bat.
0: So tell me, how did the deal with Chip come about? Chip approached you, or did you approach the team, or did you hear this was in the works?
1: Uh, no, I, I wasn't aware of it at all. Um, I got a phone call one day from Mike Cole, and they wanted to talk to me about potentially being a driver for them, and that's when I learned about the series. I learned about Um, you know, I, I obviously I knew about Chip past racing, they're legendary and, you know, uh, they're so respected in the world of racing and such a top tier program. It's such an honor to be a part of them. But yeah, I was, you know, completely shocked and excited to hear about it and to be considered. And then we talked a little bit more and and then it was go time. We, we signed a deal.
0: Was there even a a thought that entered your mind, like, no, I don't want to do this? I mean, or was it just like total yes the whole entire time?
1: Oh, no, I'm a racer. So if I can race anything and everything, I would. I, I absolutely love it. It's what I run off of. And so there wasn't a doubt in my mind that I didn't want to be a part of the series. Um, and, especially you know, a part of a team like this. So it, it doesn't get better than that, for sure.
0: Now, I was reading your bio. You started racing at the age of eight?
1: Yep. I did, at motocross.
0: What attracted you to motocross? I mean, I, I hate to sound like the stereotypical male, but at eight years old, you don't see a lot of females gravitating towards motorbikes, carts, anything like that. Yeah.
1: So I started on horseback first. Uh, My dad raced off-road cars when I was really little, before I even did horses. And then my brother got into motocross. Um, So when my mom was taking him to the track to practice, they didn't know what to do with me because I had so much energy. So they bought me a motorcycle just to take me on the peewee track. My brother's on the big track then. And I just rode laps until that thing ran out of gas. And then I'd come back in, get more gas, and go right back out. Then one day, my brother just told my dad, was like, hey, Sarah's actually really good. You should take her racing. Uh, took me to my first race. I won it. Um, two years later, I kept stepping up. Went to my first national, won that, and then it just kept escalating.
0: Now, one of the things I'm really impressed about is, is you've done a little bit of everything, two-wheel, four-wheel, super trucks so is the natural progression now you're going to try this suv thing would you would you like to try any other forms of racing as you continue to progress
1: uh like i said i absolutely love racing i'll race anything and everything i live for it and i i just it's just that thing in your blood when you're a racer you just want to race you know so if i ever get the chance that um, any other disciplines, I'm all for it. I've done almost all disciplines in off-road, I would say. There's a few still out there I haven't hit, but um, the majority of the major ones I've definitely already done, um, and that's very exciting to be able to be a, a well-rounded driver and to do well in you know several different kinds of racing, like desert racing, to rock crawling, to short course. Um, the CM racing and then also asphalt racing in a desert truck <laughs> that's a little different but it's always been uh, a joy to, to learn these new you know disciplines and to, to master them and to figure out how to become good at them so um, I've done a rally car racing as well did hill climb so that's the closest thing I've really gotten to asphalt but you know as long as I get a dab at it and I get to try it and I can be good at it and I know I can excel in it, I'm all for it.
0: That's cool. I was impressed by also uh, some of the things you've done on your website. You've kind of really embraced social media and putting yourself out there. You've got videos up. And I and I spent some time over the weekend checking some of that stuff out. And uh, it's really crazy the glimpse, an incredible, I should say, the glimpse that you give in uh, give your fans into what you do. It's really cool. I got to commend you on it. Uh, as someone who runs his own website, I looked at it and said, "This thing's excellent."
1: Oh, thanks so much. We worked really hard on that. Um, you know that that's something. in off road, we lack. Uh, you know, I feel like great big media sources, and so something we have to do ourselves and you know that is the strength of a racer in that sport is having your own uh media so i have a great team on my side and we we try to you know include everyone in our lives because what we have going on and when we're pre-running or doing all these fun things for desert racing especially it's, you know people never get to see the hard work that gets put in behind the scenes
0: and really that's the story you know how you get there and what it took to get there
1: Exactly. You know, the race is only a small part, and that's usually the part everyone gets to see.
0: So tell me a little about Extreme E. Uh, Obviously, you you found out a lot about it when you sat down with Chip and Mike and the team. But uh, give all the race fans at home a glimpse into exactly what the series is about. Because uh, I know just finding out when Chip got involved in it, it was education time for me as well.
1: Yeah, most definitely. So Extreme E is a new off-road racing series. It's founded by the same uh, people that put on Formula E. And we're going to be racing these, uh, they're going to have a lot of suspensions, but these electric UT, uh, SUVs, and we're going to be going to the most remote, remote and extreme environments around the world that have been impacted. So it's pretty awesome. We're going to have a two-people team. Two drivers are on every single team, and there's a male and a female. Um, which is awesome. It's going to be the the world's first gender-equal motorsport platform. Um, And, yeah, we start with eight teams, and basically we qualify down to a crazy race where the person of that crazy race is the last one that gets added to the final race, and then the winner wins. Um, It's a five-race series. We're going all around the world um, to crazy climate, so desert, snow, snow. Amazon, uh, all kinds of crazy places. It's really awesome and exciting. Um, And then on top of that, we're staying on a ship. So this ship is uh, ran off of other alternative fuels. And the whole goal for the series is to leave um, as little of a carbon footprint as we possibly can. So our pit our, our paddock is actually on the ship as well. So we're all gonna be staying together working together and working on our cars together on one ship
0: that's that's a twist that i didn't know anything about so thanks for that because really at this point there's not going to be really any secrets or you guys are going to have to kind of play things close to the vest if you kind of quote unquote hit on something Uh, do you follow what i'm saying
1: oh yeah most definitely it's it's going to be something different, that's for sure. You know, it's, um, we're going to have scientists as well with us that are going to be, um, you know, doing their thing on the environment for racing on. Um, so it's going to be exciting. I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to learn a lot about, one, the environment, two, about um, electric vehicles, and everything about this is just, it's a really cool cause.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. It's piqued my interest now because, let's face facts, the electronic technology is coming more and more to the forefront with Formula E. You've got hybrids running in sports cars. Indy cars talked about going to a hybrid formula. Now you're hearing rumors, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But it's, you know, it's not going to go away, that's for sure.
1: No, it definitely isn't. I think it is the future. Um, OEs, you know, they already have electric vehicles out there on the market and that's a big step already. And, you know, they're just going to keep pushing for that.
0: So this Odyssey 21, this, will this SUV be purpose built for exactly what the series is doing? Who makes it, uh, you know, what can you tell us about it?
1: Um, this vehicle is built purposely just for the series. It is a spec vehicle. I believe we won't be able to change anything the first year. Everything will be exactly the same uh, down to the tires and the steering wheel. Um, Year two, I think OE's are allowed to get involved. They can use their technology, I I think, I'm not sure, and then put um, their body on the vehicle. But other than that, um, the car, I believe, is built in France. I don't know who, um, and I don't know too much more about it because, we haven't had a chance to see it in person or drive it.
0: So what's the, uh, I, I imagine you. the announcement's been made. The first race is, I think, in January of next year. So you basically have six months to get everything put together. What is the time frame on what the series will have you guys do and the team ha- will have you do between now and then?
1: Um, so we're hoping to get a hold of the vehicle in the next few months or at least get to see it and hopefully drive it. Um, and then after that, all teams should have a vehicle by the end of the year. Um, other than that, it's just going to be uh, Chick Racing, just picking out the male driver. Uh, we put our list together and there's four drivers that were on both lists. So it sounds very promising. It's going to be one of them. And then we're just going to work on getting seat time, working together and being ready for whatever they throw at us, pretty much.
0: All right, give us some scoop. Who's on the short list?
1: I wish I could say. I have no clue, actually. They didn't tell me who the four were on their side. So,
0: so he swore you to secrecy. All right, I'm going to have to beat it I'm going to text them as soon as we hang up and say, all right, <laughs> give, me a, give me a hint on who you're going to put in the seat beside Sarah. So you, <laughs> you've got these different locales that you've never been to and a course that you've never driven so i would expect that that's going to be half the challenge
1: yeah most definitely i think it's going to be um you know adapting fast because i don't think a lot of us are going to have a lot of seat time and that's something you know is a strength of mine so i look forward to using that because i get put into vehicles all the time where sometimes i get no seat time or sometimes i get only minimal seat time and i have to you know, figure it out on the fly. And so I feel like it's going to be something close to that. Um, Of course, we're going to try to get as much seat time as we can, but if that's not in our favor, then we've got to put on our, our best playing hat. And as you know, it's chip cannot be racing that we're going to go out there and do our best to win.
0: It's all about winning chip likes winners as his hashtag. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And uh, I'm all about that. I don't want to, I don't want to be second.
0: second loser. There you go. So, in addition to that, what other things will you be doing in addition to racing with Chip?
1: Um, I still race the trophy truck for Chattanooga Whiskey. Um, I'll be racing in August, uh, Vegas, Torino. Um, It's the longest uh, American off-road racing race in the state. So, that would be really cool. And then, um, I'm always driving my Polaris Razor and racing here and there when the schedule allows. And I'm also a stuntwoman for the film industry.
0: Oh, that's cool! Yeah, very cool. Pretty busy. <laughs> well, we're excited to talk with you. I'm so glad you took some time out of your schedule to tell us a little about yourself and how you got started. And uh, I guess they have to get. We have to have some sort of race or something here in the states, so uh, we can come cover it. I don't think my boss will approve uh, approve me. Meaning, my wife will approve me to blow a bunch of cash to jet set around the world.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: maybe when we're testing one of these times. Yeah, there you go. I'll have to, I'll have to hit, hit, uh, hit Chip up and say if you guys are testing somewhere, let me know, and maybe we can come out and uh, check it out and learn more about the series. I was blown away last year at Mid Ohio was the first time I'd ever seen the Stadium Super Trucks, and that was absolute craziness. And when I was go- going around the track talking with people and fans about it, they absolutely loved it. So I'm expecting the same thing out of this. So I hope it gets some traction here in the states, and obviously with Chip's team involved, with Andretti Autosport involved, uh, they're two top-notch organizations.
1: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think it's going to be the most equivalent to Stadium Super Trucks there is, and it is the most exciting racing. So I'm excited, and I just can't wait.
0: Well, we're excited for you. Congratulations on the gig. Hopefully, we'll be able to catch up with you a little later down the road, find out more about it, and maybe catch up with you after a race or two and get your impressions, and uh, maybe we can talk about a couple of victories.
1: Awesome. I love it.
0: Sounds good. Sarah Price, Chip Ganassi Racing. Thanks for taking time out. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We're excited to follow Chip's newest program, and we'll have more on Xtreme E on our website and on the podcast as Xtreme E gets ready for their inaugural season in 2021. Earlier this year, the racing community lost one of the most versatile drivers and one of the most philanthropic as well and absolutely one of the nicest guys you could ever meet john andretti he lost his battle with colon cancer john sat down with author jade gers to tell his story and we were thrilled to talk to jade as well joining us on the pittsburgh racing now podcast jade gers jade's been involved in motorsports public relations for years he's also written a couple of books into the red about Dale Earnhardt Jr. and the phenomenal uh, success that he had in NASCAR with Budweiser's backing. In addition to that, beast about the engine that Roger Penske waxed the Indianapolis 500 field in 1994. And the latest, Jade helped John Andretti, the late John Andretti, write his autobiography before he passed away this january from colon cancer jade thanks for taking time to talk with us and we really appreciate it
2: well thank you i appreciate it good to good to be here
0: awesome let's start with a little bit about your background uh tell the fans that are listening uh how you got started in uh your your love of racing and how that translated into your career
3: uh well
2: it goes way back <laughs> I was three years old, and uh, my mom was pregnant and went into labor and and uh they didn't have a babysitter so my aunt was going to the local dirt track that night and and offered to take me with her so from that moment on uh racing was something that I really loved uh i got a, my first paying job was uh in p r and uh turned that into uh a career uh, actually going in uh, to uh, my fourth decade in, in the sport. And uh, I've done uh, everything from PR for racetracks to uh, companies like Budweiser with Dale Earnhardt Jr., uh, manufacturers like Mercedes-Benz and Mazda. So uh, if, if there's uh, a, uh, an element that where it's loud and, and uh, uh fast than i've probably uh, done pr or been involved with it
0: how great is it that you've been able to take something that you've had a passion for as a kid and turn it into a career i always tell kids whenever i get the opportunity and they ask me about my job and getting the ability to cover different sporting events and things like the indy 500 and nascar races i said you know dream big set goals and go after them
2: yeah absolutely uh and uh you know, I, I really, I mean, as much as I loved racing, I, I didn't get uh, uh, into it as a paying <laughs> career uh, till my late 20s. So, it, you know, it was something that uh, I loved, but uh, just didn't get into uh, immediately. But uh, it's never too late. And uh, if you're passionate about it, uh, it's, it's uh, really nice to have it as a career
0: let's talk about your latest book racer John Andretti's autobiography that you helped him write. Uh, when did John start writing the book and, and when did he approach you about getting involved?
4: Well, I, uh,
2: I had known John since, uh, 2004. He filled in for Dale jr. When junior was burned in a sports car crash, uh, at Pocono, uh, and, uh, Got to know him and, and really enjoyed him, and he, he remembers everything. He's a brilliant storyteller. Uh, he was diagnosed with colon cancer in early 2017, and I, I followed it pretty closely. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it didn't hit me till uh, late 2018, but I thought, oh, my God, you know, here's someone who really uh, could help, you know, or could, could do a great book uh as you know the storyteller that he is and the great memory so I, I reached out to him and he responded immediately that he said, Oh, maybe something good can come of this meaning he used his illness to help promote the awareness of colon cancer and the awareness of people to get colonoscopies um at or before the age of fifty. So he immediately saw it as an opportunity to continue that effort. Um, and unfortunately at that time, he was going through some very major treatments at a, a very big surgery. So it took quite a while till he was uh, uh, sort of well enough to, to get started. So in June of 2019, uh, he and I began the process of sitting down in his home doing interviews, and uh, got started from there. Um, Sadly, he passed before the book was was completely done, but uh, we had enough material in place that then it was just up to me to put it together in the best possible manner, and and we're finally ready to take orders and uh, have it ready to go uh, this summer for people to read.
0: For folks that are interested in getting the book, how would they go about purchasing it? Well, you can pre order it pretty much
2: anywhere, but I do recommend that you order directly from the publisher, which is Octane Press, octanepress.com. If you order it there, it's at a, a very low price. And before the 21st of this month, uh, if you order it uh, by then, which is Sunday, you're invited to uh, an online Zoom chat uh, next Tuesday night with Mario Andretti and John's son, Jarrett. So it's something that we're doing um, special, uh, something private just for those who pre-order. And So that's my recommendation. We're really excited and uh, looking forward to having Mario with us to talk about John and his life and, of course, John's son, Jarrett, who's now a racer. So uh, it's something we're very proud of uh, putting together and we're, we're looking forward to it.
0: Sounds like an exciting time. OctanePress.com for all of the podcast listeners. When you sat down with John, what were some of the things or maybe what when you started having those conversations and he started telling the stories where did you kind of want to start or where did he want to start talking about his career because quite frankly an incredible racer who would drive anything? Who just you know may not have had that overwhelming success that his uncle Mario had or his cousin Michael had, but an accomplished racer in his own right.
2: Yeah, no question, and that's one of the reasons I was always a fan of his. Is I grew up around dirt tracks, and that's how he got his start. And uh, of course, IndyCar, and then on to NASCAR, but. Uh, you know, drove an NHRA top fuel car. Uh, it, it's just an amazing career in variety. Um, I actually have a very vivid memory uh, of sitting down for the first time because the, the first question I asked was uh, when did he become aware of what being an, and- an Andretti meant? Uh, and uh, he told some brilliant Stories about uh, his teenage years, and we just we just took off from there. And uh, he was very open. Um, you know, the the book is called Racer, and it, it very much is about racing. But really, the main thread from the first page to the last page was about um, family, the Andretti family, and his family as a whole, um, and his kids. Uh, that that thread goes through the entire thing even with the the great racing story so it really uh became clear early on how much family meant to him and how much it it meant to his uh life as a whole from from start to finish
0: not uncommon in an italian family because you can just picture (laughs) everybody sitting at the big giant table for sunday dinner
2: absolutely and uh, a lot about Pennsylvania Pennsylvania plays a big role in a lot of the book Uh, John was born in in Bethlehem and uh, went to school uh, there at uh, uh, (laughs) Moravian College and uh, certainly raced a lot in Pennsylvania so uh, there's a lot of that in there as well
0: I remember he was involved in just a wicked crash at Pocono and I think it if I, if I remember the the race correctly, he had pitted for a couple of times and was complaining about a loose wheel or maybe a loose stud, and the team said, no, it's not the wheel, sent him back out, and he didn't even make it back out. Well, he technically made it back out onto the racing surface, but it was only after the car slammed into the pit road wall.
2: Yeah, there's a very uh, very compelling thing. Of the book that's about that Specifically Uh, It had actually been initially A nut had come loose And come off of a bolt in the rear Suspension So that's what he was hearing And uh, eventually He said the the Pocono pit lane At that time was like driving through a Cornfield it was very rough And finally the the bolt Itself came out and uh, that caused An amazing crash And, uh, it's a fascinating segment because he talks about as a race car driver, you're not afraid of the pain from a crash. You're afraid of being out of the car, of seeing another driver, uh, in your car or seeing the race happen without you in it. And so I found it very fascinating. It really was a look inside a racer's mentality, uh, of what it's like to, not necessarily fear being hurt, but fear being sidelined uh, from an injury that uh, that takes you out of the, the race car. So it, it's a really compelling part of the book and uh, goes into depth about uh, his injuries. So, uh, so yeah, you're right. It, it's an amazing crash and quite a, an interesting segment uh, of the book.
0: Did he, uh, when you guys sat down, did he talk much about his injuries? Uh Short track days and his dirt track days?
2: Uh, he did. Again, I, I kind of steered some of that because, honestly, I'm I'm a huge dirt track fan. So uh, he talked a lot about what it meant to get started uh, on the, the the local short tracks and, and dirt tracks and how it taught him such great car control, uh, how the track changes every lap and that you have to... Be prepared as a driver To to be able to assess that And to, to adjust your line Or adjust your driving to the track And he talked about how Important that was throughout his entire Career, even in an Indy car Or a NASCAR stock car You have to always be willing To adapt to a changing track To a changing condition And be able to make Quick decisions that uh, get you Around that track as quick as possible So uh, it was very interesting to hear him uh, talk about that as sort of the uh, like the, the ground level of his career. It's a foundation that supported the rest of his driving career, no matter what car or vehicle he was in.
0: Now he drove Indy cars. He was also the first driver ever to attempt the double, doing the Indy 500 and the Coca Cola 600 on the same day, uh, talk a little bit about his reflection of, of that, uh, you know, being the first driver to ever do that.
3: Uh, that's interesting. There's,
2: there's an entire chapter about that. And, uh, it, it, it's fascinating. He tells the story of going to a meeting with, uh, Humpy Wheeler, who, uh, most race fans are aware. Humpy was the, kind of the, uh, showman slash promoter, at the Charlotte Motor Speedway And Humpy was always looking for ways To get the media excited about the Coca-Cola 600 So he recommended to John You know, you could run Indy and then Charlotte in the same day And he said, it's, it's never been done And John thought, wow, it's never been done Maybe I should try it and uh, it took off from there. So it, it was fascinating when he talked about uh, the d- demands of the, the travel schedule, traveling between Indianapolis and all the NASCAR activities at that time. Uh, the NASCAR, qual- or excuse me, the Indy qualifying weekend uh, was the same weekend as the race, the NASCAR race in Sonoma, California. So He was making some very long flights back and forth uh, earlier in the month, and then on race day at Indy, uh, he had really only about a 20-minute window. If Indy would have been delayed or if his travel would have been delayed, he wouldn't have made the start in the Coca-Cola 600. So uh, it's fascinating how they put the logistics of that together and how he made it to just in time to climb into the stock car and continue his day. So, uh, very uh, uh, interesting and and as much a tale of uh, logistics and planning as anything else uh, to make sure that uh, that he can make it happen.
0: A lot of fans may not realize that John also climbed into a Top Fuel dragster and almost went three hundred mile an hour. I think he may have went 300 miles. I I can't recall specifically, but that goes back to just his versatility. And while his uncle and his cousin got so much notoriety, just his ability to drive anything is really what impressed the hell out of me about John Andretti.
2: Oh, very much so. Uh, And he actually jokes. he talks about uh, at that time going 300 miles an hour was not an everyday occurrence. And the NHRA has what they call the 300 mile an hour club, and John just desperately wanted to get into that. And uh, his his top speed twice was 298.9, so it just killed him that he was so close, but couldn't get to to that 300 mark. Uh, and he just he loved drag racing. He loved the people. Uh, but he also laughed that, you know, he said, I like to drive and I like to drive more than five seconds at a time. So that was one of his views of, of drag racing. But uh, again, that's uh, a very, very entertaining part of the, of the book. Uh, he talks in great detail about that, uh, about uh, the people and, and his experience uh, driving, uh, you know, nearly 300 miles per hour.
0: Did he talk much about the success that his uncle and his cousin had and the fact that he, he himself never had that kind of success in terms of wins and podiums and things along that nature? Uh, was there ever any bitterness about it, or did he just kind of all take it in stride?
2: No, there, there is no no bitterness, and he he talks at length about that, uh, particularly because I think with his illness um, and fighting cancer for three years, he he kind of joked. He said, "You know, I I wasn't struck by lightning. I, I I've dealt with this, and I had a lot of time to think and ponder my life and ponder this sickness." Uh, and he talks about reflecting on the fact that he doesn't feel bitter or doesn't look back and and think, oh, I wish this or I wish that. He said it really only comes up when people ask him that. Um, He's very proud of his career. He also was very aware early on in his career that the thing that makes a real difference in the world is how you are and what your actions are outside of the car. Uh, which clearly he was very uh, uh, active, very philanthropic. And so that became a big part of his life. Uh, It's also something I can mention as well about the book. Uh, It's something that continues. He created, uh, it's called Race for Riley, which was a charity that raised proceeds for the children at Riley Hospital in Indianapolis. Uh, In his life, he raised about 4.5. $85 five million million for that charity. And to keep that going, uh, we worked with uh, John and his family to uh, uh, put a deal together where 10% of all proceeds from this book uh, go directly to Race for Riley. So uh, that part of his life continues. Uh, his family very much uh, believe in that and want to continue that. So uh, that really says so much about John as a person versus uh, someone who, uh, you know, judges their life only by the number of trophies in their in their trophy case. So it's, it's one of the fascinating
3: things about it.
0: When John passed, uh, I read a statement from uh, Riley's that said there was never a time where we didn't pick up the phone and call John, that he didn't answer it and do whatever we asked him to do. He was so unselfish in that respect. And you can't say that a lot of, uh, about all successful people in life. And I think, you know, what you guys are doing with the book and with what his family's doing with the book to continue his legacy, that's tremendous.
3: Yeah, it, it, it
2: meant a lot to John. and It meant a lot to them. And uh, the Riley people are wonderful people. We've enjoyed working with them. And uh, it, it's just, um, like I say, it says so much about uh, John as a human. Uh, versus, you know, uh, discussing another trophy or whatever. Although, you know, you would ask about Mario and Michael. He revered Mario, and he and Michael were close best friends from uh, pretty much their whole life. And so uh, there's, there's so much about those two gentlemen as well. But it's never uh, in a way where he's envious of their success. He, he's so proud of them and was so thrilled with uh, every success that they had.
0: One of the cool things is Jarrett drives for Michael now in the sports car series, and Jarrett is the next generation, along with Marco and other generation of Andrettis, for all of us fans to get behind and support. And uh, Jarrett, much like his dad, came up through the dirt tracks, and he gets to drive the sports car as well. And it's, it's been amazing kind of watching his career. And I know John had a big part in, in helping him along there. So uh, I think it'll be awesome to continue to watch Jarrett's career progress. And how much pride did John take in the fact that Jarrett followed in his footsteps?
4: Uh, He had
2: immense pride. Uh, And again, that's, uh, that's, really uh, a message of the book later Later on in the book uh, when John retired from racing uh, he really kind of became full time uh, uh, helper with Jarrett and that included working with the sponsors he was his crew chief in sprint car racing for a while uh, so it, it, it was really great to see how much pride John took in Jarrett's racing career and his daughters as well Olivia his oldest daughter uh, is in medical school. Uh, John's immensely proud of her. Their youngest, uh, uh, Amelia, is just entering college and uh, is uh, like his uh, brother and sister. Uh, she's she's very uh, very bright, and John just uh, just raved about his kids. He would light up when he would talk about them and what they meant to him, and so uh, that that comes through in the, in the book as well. So. Uh, definitely, again, theme, the theme of family uh, is present throughout the whole
0: thing. I was going to say, behind every race car driver, there's a spouse who is completely <laughs> and totally unselfish to let them pursue their passion. And uh, John had that, obviously, with his wife.
4: No
2: question. Uh,
0: Nancy is, is just, she's just like John, she's just a wonderful
2: person uh just just amazing you know raised three great kids and she really John called Calder is guardian angel uh when he became sick she really took over she coordinated everything with the doctors with the treatments uh, and really played a huge role in that and uh I had not uh known Nancy before starting on the the book process and so it's been great for me to get to know her and and the kids Uh, for me selfishly just uh, writing the book it was such a great project to get to know them and, and spend time with them
0: well I'm excited to read the book I can't wait to check it out Uh, It's just a a phenomenal story about a phenomenal guy. And for anybody that's out there that listens to the podcast, really a grassroots racer who just happens to have a famous last name. Absolutely. Let's talk about another one of your books, Beast, which I found to be totally fascinating about how Roger Penske, Ilmore Engineering, went through incredible lengths to win one race the indianapolis 500 in 1994 and what kind of drove you to want to tell that story and how willing or or penske and the ilmore people to talk about it
2: (laughs) well i I was very lucky i actually went to work for ilmore uh in the late 90s so i was very lucky uh it's such a great company and um i i was aware of of the the engine because i was there in 94 uh, purely as a fan i was there at the race as a fan and knew do some of the stories but we would go to dinner after a race uh with the team and uh maybe a, a drink or two would flow and, and suddenly these amazing stories would start coming out uh and i just thought oh my god this is you know, this is really amazing. This is a, a wonderful story. Um, so that always was in the back of my mind. Uh, and then sadly in 2001, uh, Paul Morgan, who was one of the Ilmore founders, uh, he collected, or he, his great love was vintage world war two planes. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately had a crash, uh, upon landing and was killed in 2001. And, Paul really had a huge role in the whole project. And I just, I was heartbroken because I, I loved Paul, but I also thought, oh, you know, maybe that story has died. But then I became close with Paul's son, who made just a kind of an offhand comment one day. We were talking on the phone and he said, oh, I would love to know what my dad was doing during that time frame. And it was, again, one of those just little spark that was enough to think, wow, you know, maybe this time is to right to, uh, to do a book. So I first went to Mario Ilian, who is the ill of ill more. Um, and he was very excited about that idea. And so he actually went to Roger immediately. And once Roger gave the thumbs up, boy, I was I was ready to go. The green flag had flow. And so I uh, set off and and uh, really interviewed some amazing people from all the different aspects of it, uh, including the drivers, a jr uh, and Paul Tracy. mo fittipaldi he was really tough to get a hold of, so uh, mo didn't have much of a role in the book, but he's certainly a big player in the story, but, uh, uh, it just again uh, uh, almost as a fan I was fascinated I just I wanted to learn these stories for myself and the fact that I could share them with uh, the rest of the world is uh, is a great honor it's something that uh, I've done a lot in my career but Beast is something I'm probably most proud of uh, in my career as far as a project that people just seem to love and react positively to
0: it amazes me in the book, do you touch on how much money they spent compared to how much money they won winning the race? <laughs> I mean, it had to be a losing financial proposition.
2: Well, it's fascinating because no one would tell me <laughs>
0: no one would share the budget with me.
2: but we we sort of did we did some snooping we we, we kind of had some people kind of estimate and guess. Uh, And it it was very expensive. It was definitely millions and millions of dollars. But what came of it was that it became the the first project that Mercedes-Benz came together with Roger. And suddenly Mercedes became a huge partner of Roger and Ilmore. And that continued through um, IndyCar seasons. And then they got together in Formula One and won Formula One World Championships, so the upfront cost may have been uh, expensive, but believe me, it paid off immensely for Roger and his business, and it paid off immensely for Ilmore becoming a part of a World Championship Formula One team, so uh, I think what, uh, you know the return on investment, if you're looking for that, I think it was very, very big and very huge uh, versus what that initial expense
0: was let's w- kind of wet everyone's appetite so they go out and buy the book and read it exact <laughs> the beast was the engine and they the how did the idea come about it was basically like a gray area in the rules if i'm not mistaken
2: um it really wasn't a gray area but Uh, As usual with Roger Penske, uh, he's known for just reading every rule uh, with a fine-tooth comb. And the same as Ilmore. The rule had been put in by the Speedway with the intent of helping um, sort of the little guy. They wanted to develop a a, a way for someone to build a a pushrod engine. That would be competitive with, uh, you know, such people such as Ilmore or at that time Ford Cosworth. Um, and what it meant was that if you had a stock block car, it, it no longer had to have the actual stock block from the the factory. Um, if you're a fan of IndyCar car racing, you remember the Buick from that era. The Buick was a stock block. They were very very fast over. Uh, one lap or four laps for qualifying, but they weren't reliable because the, the block was built for small street cars. It wasn't built for racing. And the Speedway took out the rule that the block had to be stocked. And suddenly Penske and Ilmore realized wait a minute, we can build a racing specific block to these rules and have the ability to produce much more horsepower. So, anyway, that's a long answer to your question, but. Um, it really wasn't... Uh, people say, oh, it was a loophole, or they went around the rules. Absolutely not. They took the, the specific rule and built an engine to match it exactly. Um, and uh, that's what ended up producing the, the beast.
0: And what's interesting from what I've read is that it's was the secrecy surrounding it. It was, you know, nobody could tell anybody... <laughs> <laughs> anything about it, which is even more fascinating to me.
2: Yeah, and and in the same way that John Andretti's book is about racing, but it's really about family. Uh, the book "Beast" theoretically is about an engine, but it's really about the people and the sort of the. I don't know. It's like it's like a spy novel or something. How how far they went to keep it quiet, and the the reason is. Uh, Honda was coming into IndyCar and Ilmore knew that Honda was the king of Formula One. They would stop at nothing and no expense to develop a winning engine. And they became fearful that Honda was going to use this rule to build some, you know, some killer engine. You also had uh, Cosworth at that time was in the sport. Uh, so Ilmore and, and Roger were very concerned that uh, their competitors were going to do it before they would. Uh, and that's why it was secret. They, they wanted to have the jump. They wanted to have that advantage uh, before their competitors figured it out. So that's why it was so secret. And that's why it was also such a, you know, it was like setting off an atomic bomb. They didn't reveal it publicly until two weeks before practice for the 500 began. So it it just, it was an amazing uh, unveiling. And of course it won the race and then uh, the speedway began changing the rules and, and uh, tried to uh, make sure that they didn't have to uh, see uh, one team uh, the following year run away with it like they did in 94. So uh, that was a big part of the, the reasoning for the secrecy and the, the way they went about it,
0: and what's even I think more amazing, and it actually lends itself to the book and the story, the fact that the following year Roger Roger's team didn't qualify for the race, so it, it just adds that much more of a twist to the entire process.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, um, and and them failing to make the race again was fascinating um and uh just really reflected th- that they had missed something in their chassis that uh the year before the the having such an advantage with the engine sort of covered that up covered up the uh sort of the inherent issue uh in the car and that that sort of uh bit them in the butt i guess you could say in 95 by uh Uh, you know seeing them fail to qualify for the indy 500
0: it just lends to the mystique of the indianapolis motor speedway in my opinion you know they often say that the speedway picks the winners so
2: yeah (laughs) yeah i i uh for for me it's a sacred place and uh i'm with a lot of people who just it's a special place to be and it just has a, a, an atmosphere unlike any other.
0: You know, it's funny. You hit on the one thing that I try and tell everyone who is just a casual race fan or just a sports fan that's not a race fan, that it, that if you're a sports fan, you need to put the Indianapolis 500 on your bucket list, and you can't just go one day. You need to make a weekend of it, go to the museum, take in everything about it because you're right the place just has a mystique it kind of sucks you in uh i first went my boss sent me to my first assignment to the speedway in 2001 after montoya won in 2000 he's like i can't believe we didn't go we should have been there you know he's screaming at me about it i'm like okay fine i'll get credentialed for the next one and i've covered every indy 500 since for different entities and, you know, it just seems so weird a couple of weeks ago not being out there for three weekends in May.
2: Yeah, it, 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 it's magical. I, I You know, and, and part of Beast was I really wanted to convey the excitement or the atmosphere of, of indie to, to make people understand why someone like Roger would direct such a huge effort and huge expense into winning just one race, uh, that was part of my challenge. How to make someone who's not been to the 500 understand why this was so meaningful to so many people, and and you, you're dead on. I, I, I really, I'm the same way. Uh, I took my mom to the Speedway for the first time. I think she was 73 years old, and. It was just that was my my favorite day was taking my mom to her first Indy five hundred and it's something I think everyone should uh, should go see.
0: That's awesome. In addition to having the book about the beast, John Andretti's book, you had the opportunity to work with Anheuser Busch and Dale Earnhardt. You wrote a book into the red, uh, the two thousand one season with Dale Earnhardt Jr. Tell the fans at home a little bit about what the book's about. Because really, that was kind of like I, I would have to say almost the zenith of NASCAR's popularity.
2: Yeah, it it, it was, uh, and it it it's really kind of a sequel. Uh, Dale Junior. and I worked together first on a book called Driver Number Eight, that was uh, behind the scenes of his rookie year, his two thousand season, uh, that turned out to be. Uh, you know an amazing year he won uh, several races he won the all-star race and so we we captured that uh in a book uh, called driver number eight so uh i had wanted to do the follow-up to that which is obviously the next year the the 2001 season um which you know again people are probably aware that that began at daytona with the death of his father uh in the daytona 500 and uh so it, it was something that really was a shockwave to the world, not just to, to Dale Jr. Uh, so uh, the book in the red was about that season and about how Dale Jr. dealt with it and about how, uh, you know, the it the, seemed the whole world had changed. So um, I had wanted to do that for a long time. And honestly, Dale was just, he was just so busy as a, a cup driver and you know, and then he started JR Motorsports, and he finally said to me, he said, look, I, I'm too busy. I, I really don't have time to, to do a book right now, but if, if you would like to do the book, you you know, go, go ahead and, and do it. So once he kind of gave uh, the thumbs up, uh, then I uh, set about working on uh, in the red. So uh, that's how that book, came about and um, you know, it's it, it, it's it's fun in the sense that it, it reveals Dale Jr.'s personality, which uh, is, is really, he's just a fascinating human, but it's also the serious side of uh, how he dealt with losing his father and, and dealt with, uh, you know, losing also kind of his hero in life that, you know, his day he drove for his dad's team. So, he lost his boss. It's just, uh, boy, it's just uh, heart wrenching on so many levels. But uh, I was again, I was proud to be able to tell that story and sort of fill in a lot of the behind the scenes stories that uh, really hadn't been been
3: shared.
0: I'm looking forward to reading that as well. I'll have to grab Drive Rate. I remember Drive Rate when it come out. Uh, so. I'm I'm super excited, and I'm so glad that you've been able to talk about these, and our our race fans here in Western PA and the sur- surrounding tri-state area can uh, check those out. For the local guys, I want you to put your your industry hat on for a sec. For the local okay. track guys, any kind of advice that you could give them today on how to help their program. And you know we've got so many different things between social media and whatnot. Uh, any advice that you can give the local guys on on some of the do's and don'ts and how they can help uh, advance their program using the media and public relations?
2: Yeah, you know it. it everyone knows it's it's a rough rough time right now for for everyone. Um, you know NASCAR's been back for a while, but you know even them. Uh, you know, it's just it's extraordinary times. It's it's sort of uncharted territory. But what has come from this sort of strange uh time is if if you followed uh IndyCar or, or NASCAR, their drivers have really been very um, much activated on social media. And we've learned more about their personalities. They, they've really shown more of themselves than just, you know, a, a guy in a, a fireproof suit with a helmet on. They've uh, really shared what's behind that person. And I think that applies to racers no matter what level they're on. Um, the best way to develop fans is to be someone that, that fans can appreciate or understand or relate to, um, you know, to to have someone in the stands that says, "Man, I, you know, I, I really like that guy," or "That guy went through what I did," um, and uh, that that's a, a wonderful way to develop uh, new fans. So um, I, I would encourage people, even if you're hesitant about be, being involved in social media. It, it's it's here now. It's it's really become such a huge thing that it's something that they should should really consider presenting themselves in a very positive manner. Um, it it does break my heart with local media. A lot of the newspapers are really falling on hard times. That used to always be the best way was. Uh, you know, developing a good relationship with your local newspaper. And a lot of those have gone away. But if you do have a local newspaper, find out who the sports editor is. Uh, let them know that, uh, you know, you're a local racer that, uh, you know, maybe you're developing a winning streak or you're you're out there, um, you know, representing your hometown uh, on the racetrack. So uh, there, there's no great magic or secret to good PR. It's about it's literally public relations. It's about developing a good relationship with the public, with the media, and with, uh, with the tracks where you race. Um, so again, it's, it's developing those relationships and utilizing those relationships as your career grows or as you move up the ladder. Um, you'll, you'll always have those good local relationships um, to support you from, from day one through, uh, through your career as you move up the ladder. So uh, I don't know if that's, that's the best advice, but that's how I see it from, from my career and uh, helped my, uh, my success and many others that, uh, that I've worked with.
0: Well, you hit on actually one of the reasons I started Pittsburgh Racing now is because of all of the loss of the small local papers. The local racers and the companies that support the racers just do not get the publicity anymore. And it's, you know, it's that cycle where the companies need the return on investment. They need that ROI to continue to do it. So you need to be able, as I think today, as a race car driver or a team, even on the local front, you need to help them get that ROI by engaging with the media, engaging with the fans, engaging with their employees. And with the loss of those small local community papers, uh, the racers have lost that avenue. So I'm hoping this gives them that avenue. And I was shocked when I started meeting some of the guys, and some of the lo- that some of them don't even have social media accounts. So that's one of the reasons I asked you the question because it's really almost a free, invaluable tool to them.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and it, it's it's still new enough that you're limited only by your imagination. Um, so it it gives you a great platform to uh, you know. Do do something new and different, and and show why you're a guy that maybe the local uh, grocery store or uh, you know a local business. You can present a, an image uh, that uh, shows the sponsors as well. Hey, this is a person that we want to do business with, or the, this is a person that can help us reach our customers, and it's. Uh, You know, it's a terrifying time, but it's also uh, uh, an opening to those who are smart and creative to show their personality.
0: Well said. Jade Gerst, thanks for taking time to talk with us here on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. So excited to read John Andretti's autobiography, Beast, Driver 8, In the Red. Go out and get them. Check them out at your local bookstore. You can get them at Octane Press and all the more reason to go out and get John Andretti's book is 10% of the proceeds will go to his charity at Riley children's hospital in Indianapolis. Jade. Thanks so much. Thank you. I loved it. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the time. And, uh, hopefully we'll be able to, our, uh, we'll be able to cross paths at some point in time. And, uh, uh, I'll enjoy chatting with you some more about uh, things that you've encountered in your life and uh, hopefully we'll we'll get somebody from western Pennsylvania or maybe the other side of the state. We'll, we'll get them back at one of the speedways. Uh, we can see a guy like a John Andretti or a Michael Andretti or a Chip Ganassi come out of this area and carry the torch for uh, the Keystone State.
2: Absolutely.
0: Thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Great talking with Jade. I can't wait to read Racer. And if you're a racing fan, all of his books are must-reads. Turning to NASCAR news, Denny Hamlin picked up the win this past Sunday at Homestead Miami Speedway. Earlier in the week, Martin Truex Jr. picked up the win Wednesday night at Martinsville. The big news, however, was NASCAR banning the Confederate flag at their events and their facilities. The move was brought on in part by by george floyd's death but also driver bubba wallace saying it was time for nascar to do it we caught up with fox sports reporter jamie little before the homestead race to talk some nascar joining us on the pittsburgh racing now podcast a reporter extraordinaire from fox sports jamie little jamie thanks for taking time out it's been an exciting couple of weeks now that nascar's back on track
5: Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, it, it has been a whirlwind. I cannot believe how many races it feels like every day we have another NASCAR race. So that's a really good thing. And um, it's been fun to be back, but definitely different.
0: What were some of the things that you guys and the crew have had to do in order to cover the events? What are some of the protocols that NASCARs put into place? Because these are things that I'm sure we're going to be dealing with as things begin to open back up across the country.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of different things they've done for safety, whether it's Fox side or NASCAR. And, you know, we usually have three or four pit reporters per race. We are down to one now per weekend. Um, so obviously that's a big part. We've cut back a lot of our crew. We're, I mean, it's amazing what we're being able to produce with such a limited amount of people at the track. But, um, we have one camera crew, one handheld crew down in the pit with one reporter covering all the action. Um, you get tested. You get tested every single day. I have to sign in and do a test, take my temperature just to stay in the workload. So um, it has been different on so many levels, just the way that you get information in the pits. And um, during a race, you can't go talk to the pit crew members like before. Of course, you're wearing a mask the entire time, not just when you're on camera. You have to leave it on at all times. Um, and no fans has been really, really strange.
0: The challenge of trying to get the information, I, I would think, you know, when you're covering a normal race, you duck into the pitch, you you ask one of the crew guys or the crew chief or the car chief what's happening and, you know, they kind of fill you in. How are you guys getting that information now? That that would seem to be like a monumental challenge.
5: Yes, and usually each one of us fair reporters has a pit spotter, which is an extra set of eyes and ears that's right by our side. So, They're scanning other drivers because normally we'll have 10 cars, say. And then I'm scanning kind of like my front runners. And then my pit spotter is is scanning those others to update me. So we don't have that with us anymore. So my spotter is actually at home. He's got a setup where he can scan drivers. So he is texting me updates on my cars or the entire field, mind you, um, throughout the race. And then our pit producer She's usually in the truck. Well, she's back in the Charlotte studios with the other main producer of the show and our broadcasters. And she's updating me what PR people are saying. And those PR people aren't allowed at the track either. So it's all texting. My um, Apple watch comes in very handy. (laughs) I get all the updates there. And um, if I want to confirm something in the pits like I just did this past weekend in Atlanta, I'll write little signs um, on a piece of paper and I'll hold it up to the crew chief. And they'll nod yes or no, or I could do that for a crew member. So it's, uh, it definitely takes a little bit of time, but we're adjusting. And I think the amount of information we're getting is really, really good. So I'm sure we're going to take some of these things moving forward that could help us when we're back to normal.
0: Yeah. To be honest with you, sitting at home watching it, you really wouldn't notice a difference. I haven't really noticed a difference, quite frankly. You guys have been killing it.
5: Oh, thank you. Well, that's the idea, isn't it? I mean, And all the information that gets on the broadcast, it's up to us. You know, we're self-producing out there in the pits just as things develop and and storylines that I got in the morning or throughout, you know, I guess, you know, right now we only get to talk to the crew chiefs before the race in the morning. So that has been good that that stayed the same. We talked to them, but it's strange because we don't have those storylines necessarily coming into race day. Normally we have a couple of days of practice, qualifying. So, you know, this car had, uh, you know, an issue on Friday. Did they get it worked out? There's none of that. There's a lot of guesswork that's going into it. So um, you talk to your crew chiefs, you get as much as you can, and you try to tell those stories on the air.
0: You know, it's interesting with the one-day shows – Uh, You really get to see how incredible some of these pit crews and crew chiefs are. I think Martinsville was a great example. You know, at the start of the race, half the field went backwards, half the field went forward, but yet at the end of the race, some of the guys who, like Blaney might be a perfect example, he dropped back, lost a lap, had problems in the pits, and next thing you know, he's up there in second place. So it's just amazing the job these guys are doing in the pits and on the cars considering, you know, once the car hits a track, that's the only time they know what they've got.
5: That's exactly right. It's kind of exciting. I think the storylines of, I don't know what we have. We think we're prepared. We think that all the data, the simulation, the notes that we have from the past will translate, but they really don't know. And another thing is like Jimmy Johnson's crew chief, Cliff Daniels told me he doesn't even go in the shop still. All the road guys are not going in the shop. They do it all through telecommuting they're seeing scans on their computer at home um so they're distancing so he literally does not see that race car until it unloads at the racetrack so that's a lot different than normal so um they really don't know what they have and and they hit the track and it's like some of them tell me you'll know within 10 laps if you hit it or you missed it and um and those guys like kevin harvick that have just unloaded solid every single weekend just shows the preparation And the understanding of having all that experience together is really paying off.
0: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. The big story this past week, obviously, NASCAR banned the Confederate flag at their events and at their venues. And it really started when Bubba Wallace got the ball rolling with uh, his interview on CNN and some of the other media outlets where he was talking about the George Floyd situation and the Black Lives Matter And I was really impressed with the way Bubba stepped up, took that spotlight on, and he was very eloquent in some of the things that he said.
5: I agree. We all know, I mean, a lot of people that didn't watch NASCAR obviously didn't know that we had a black driver in the field. And Bubba has been in this series a long time. He's been in NASCAR in general, from trucks to Xfinity, for years and years. And you think about the pushback, the comments, things that he's had to endure over his entire career yet he never turned away. He's finally getting his due to speak out and say, this is enough. And he has the fellow competitors all coming out. You saw the video that they said, it's time for change. This is enough is enough. And I am so proud of Bubba for speaking out finally. And he's being heard. And I commend NASCAR. There's different hierarchy there. I think now in this day and age, they're more apt to listening to those drivers. The drivers know they can go to NASCAR and say, we need to do something here and they're acting quickly. So I'm proud of the whole situation and Bubba. I mean, not only did he speak so well about it, he went to Martinsville and stepped up, said that was the biggest risk of his career because of all the eyeballs, everything he had said. He ran in the top 10, the entire race and ended 11th. I was really impressed.
0: Yeah, he did. He, He wheeled the car very well the other night and, uh, You know, I I think one of the greatest things that it's done is it's brought in more eyeballs. And I've seen on social media so many people that said, hey, I'm going to start following NASCAR, African-American, African-Americans included. And that's really what it's all about. I went to my first race in the late 80s as a fan, started covering it when I got out of college in the in the 90s. And it's great to see them trying to be inclusive with everything, because let's face facts, the world has definitely evolved over the past 30 years. It's not what it was in 1989. And NASCAR needed to take a couple of steps forward. And I'm glad they did.
5: Absolutely. And you know, NASCAR is just like so many organizations. Well, this is the way we've always done things. So why do we need to change? Well, NASCAR the last few years has really stepped up and realized we're not in the 70s and 80s, and we're not going to move forward and progress unless we open our arms and change some ways of doing things. And, you know, the, the heritage of NASCAR, where it started, was the South. So there's always kind of been that perception, I think, from outsiders, like, well, I'm not welcome there. I, I don't look like those race fans, so I'm not welcome, or I don't feel comfortable going there. There's Confederate flags, and, and that insults me, and it doesn't make me feel safe. And if anybody feels like that going to a sporting event, Well, you should probably not have it because it's a great time to experience sports and share that together, no matter who you are or where you're from. And that's why I think it's a great choice that the Confederate flag is banned. These people can have it at home. You don't need to bring it to a public place where everybody is welcome.
0: Well said. Well said. Let's talk a little bit about the on-track action. Kevin uh harvick has been hot martin truex picked up the win the other night keselowski ended up with two wins he said uh after bristol jeremy uh, to jeremy bullens crew chief let's go to vegas because with uh the charlotte deal and then with chase Elliott and joey logano it's just been an incredible couple of weeks of on-track action
5: <laughs> it really has everybody's kind of going do we even need practice and qualifying this is great so I, you know, and I, I, it's amazing what these teams are able to do running, you know, in the middle of the week, and then they have to turn around and travel and be ready four days later for a different style of racetrack. I think it's been uh, incredible. Just what everybody's been able to accomplish, not knowing exactly what we're going to see. I think the intensity for these drivers, we're seeing it, you know, and kind of the back and forth, the off track jabs back and forth. That's what NASCAR is all about. It's emotional. And right now is a very sensitive and emotional time in our world. And I love seeing that come out on the track. People are stepping up, they're speaking out, and the racing has been awesome. So I can't complain. I I think we're really in a great place. And and being one of the first to start up again during this pandemic has, has been incredible. And I think it shows other sports and other people across the country that it is doable to get back to normal. You just need to be smart and safe with it
0: well said smart and safe i think that's the the something that everybody can carry going forward it looks like just from my perspective that it seems like the penske cars harvick's car the hottest fords seems like chase elliott and the hender cars seem to be the hottest chevrolets and the gibbs cars each one of has been up there at different times between truex Kyle Bush and Denny Hamlin, they seem to be the class of the Toyota fields. What do you expect going into the next couple of weeks as we head towards Homestead and eventually here at Pocono?
5: Yeah, it's been really interesting, the parity um, within organizations as well. Um, like Stuart Haas, you see Clint Boyer's up there top five every week. Kevin Harvick seems like he's always a threat to win. And then, like you said, Gibbs, people have been like, oh, well, they're not running as well. Well, they killed it last year. They dominated last year. So I think other teams have progressed a little bit more, but I mean, you look at it, Gibbs still has three wins on the season out of 11 races. So that's pretty darn good. But now we're going to Homestead. Kyle Busch is great there. Kevin Harvick is incredible there. Um, and uh, even like a, a rookie in Tyler Reddick, who's won the last two Xfinity championships and won that race there. I expect him to be good. So um, I think Homestead is an incredible racetrack. It always puts on a good show. So that's going to be fun. And then we go to one of my favorite places, and that's Talladega, which is a complete crapshoot. So it'll be a lot of fun the next couple of weeks.
0: No doubt about it. We know you got a packed schedule. I know you're based in Indianapolis. I want to thank you for the bunt cake that you brought to the Speedway. Uh, last May, that was much needed on a sugar drop there. So uh, for all the folks listening, when you're out in uh, Carmel, Indiana, nothing bunt cakes, go uh, hit up Jamie and her husband's business. It's great to patronize that, and uh, it was a wonderful gesture by you guys. How are things going in the state of Indiana in regards to COVID-19? We're not going to have fans at the Indy NASCAR weekend, so I'm kind of looking forward ahead towards the Indianapolis 500. My heart's been broken for poor Roger Penske after he bought the place. He just hasn't been able to to turn it loose. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping for his team's sake and for all of Penske Corp that they can have the 500 with fans.
5: Absolutely. I, and I thank you for saying that about the cakes. <laughs> Thankfully, we are food. So we've been essential through the whole issue. And you know, everybody's celebrating graduations and birthdays still. So thankfully the cake business has been great. Um, I've been a delivery driver for the two, past two and a half, three months, because that's been kind of the way of, of the world. Um, so I'm thankful for that. But when it comes to the racetrack, you know, they just, I think as of today, they're allowing um, people back at racetracks, 50% capacity, I believe. Restaurants are 75%. We've been going out to restaurants. So things are getting back to normal here. And, it's just unfortunate that they've already announced for the Brickyard 400 that no fans will be there because, hey, we're going to have fans this weekend and then 5,000 fans at Talladega. Why not let fans at Indianapolis Motor Speedway in a very limited capacity? I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't. Um And when it comes to the Indy 500, I know I, I feel so bad for Roger, but he's going to be just fine. The changes he's making to that track are going to be incredible and I agree with him and others that say we cannot run the 500 without fans. So um, if we need to move it back past August, we will. But as of now, things are going in the right direction in Indianapolis. So we should be right on schedule to have those fans when we need them in August.
0: Awesome. Last question. I know you have an X Games background, so I wanted to ask you about Chip Ganassi racing, hiring Sarah Price. What can you tell us about her?
5: I don't know a whole lot about her. I've actually been reading up on just, her and her situation and what chip has done to sign her. I love that. I love when a big organization, a team owner like chip takes a chance on a female. And I say chance because it doesn't happen very often. And that's what it took for Danica Patrick, Bobby Rahal Hall had to see something in her and say, I'm going to get behind her back, her bring sponsorship. And then look, we got Danica Patrick. We need more of that. So I really hope for Sarah that she uh, goes leaps and bounds ahead, opens some eyes and, and open doors. So, congratulations to both of them. Chip being the first one to just say, yes, let's sign her.
0: Jamie Little, Fox Sports, NASCAR on Fox. We appreciate you taking time out. We know you have a busy day. We're looking forward to watching uh, both the Xfinity and the Cup Race this weekend on Fox. Thanks for taking time to join us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast.
5: Absolutely. Looking forward to being in your home state in a couple of weeks for Pocono.
0: Sounds good. We're looking forward to it too. Everybody on Fox does a great job. We appreciate what you do for the sport of racing.
1: Thank you. Have
0: a great day. Thanks to Jamie for taking time out of her schedule to talk with us. If you're ever in Carmel, Indiana, you need to stop and get a bunt or mini bunt cake at their nothing bunt cake store. They also own two Jimmy John's franchises in Vegas. If you're out in Vegas as well. Shifting gears to open wheels, Chip Ganassi Racing, Scott Dixon picked up the win in the season opening race at Texas Motor Speedway. We caught up with Nick Yeoman of the IndyCar Radio Network. He covered the event. Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast, Nick Yeoman from the IndyCar Radio Network. Nick was down at the IndyCar season opening Genesis 300 at Texas Motor Speedway. Nick, how great is it that we can finally talk some IndyCar racing?
3: Oh, Scott, it's uh, it's fantastic. Honestly, this uh, long off season lasted a little bit longer than uh, I think any of us expected. But uh, you know, as we all kind of continue to to get back and and discover what normal life is like, it's uh, it's nice to be back and, and talking about racing and to get that first IndyCar Series race uh, under our belts.
0: Well, talk a little bit about the process that IndyCar had everybody go through and the uh, the amount of effort they had to put into it. To basically make it a one-day show, from what I understood, they had to charter a couple of planes, and uh, it was a very uh, detailed. From what the guys on the NBC broadcast said, it was a very detailed plan that the uh, that the Speedway, or I shouldn't say the Speedway, that the series put out and put together to uh, to get the race going.
3: Yeah, I, I think like most you know sports leagues and organizations that are trying to get back to business as usual. Um, IndyCar certainly aired on the side of, uh, of precaution and, and made sure that uh, you, you know you could cram as much into one day, limit the exposure of, uh, of, of folks at the racetrack as well as, as the travel. Uh, but it was quite interesting getting to the racetrack on uh, on that Saturday morning. They had tents set up to screen folks. uh was a questionnaire. They took temperatures, asked you about you know any ill effects that you had been feeling over the last you know day or two. Um, like like you see in a lot of places. And then uh, at the racetrack, you know, it it was certainly a scaled-down effort. Uh, The teams didn't have nearly as many folks there. Uh, It was really essential personnel only. From the radio network side, I was the only one that traveled. You mentioned NBC. They didn't send uh, nearly as many people as well. Uh, On the television compound, the production side, it was just really scaled down. Um, Certainly, you know, folks were, were required to wear masks down there and to keep distance. Uh, the way we did interviews to uh, to stand six feet back, it was uh, was important as well. Um, so yeah, it was it was everyone airing on the side of precaution to make sure that we can get through this first one uh, as as safely as possible. And as things continue to open back up, and, and hopefully we continue to get good news, um, you know, in terms of, of information from from the CDC that uh, that things can go back to normal. But it was uh, from from all things that I gathered and people that I talked to, I think folks are pretty happy with how that first race went
0: well it's good to get the cars back on the track and get uh, get a sense of normalcy back into the series uh we'll shift gears a little bit to actually the cars getting on the track it was a learning experience as far as the first practice went for uh rookie renas vk he had a rough uh, afternoon and then when we went to qualifying it turned into an even harder afternoon for takuma sato of ray hall letterman Lanigan racing and, uh, and really, for for I th- when I look back at the race, those two drivers really had a rough weekend.
3: Yeah, and I think that's the downside of, of trying to cram everything into one day is that boy, if if you miss it in practice or in qualifying, there's just not a lot of time to turn around and get a car ready for the race. And, and certainly, the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan crew found that out the hard way as, as Takuma Sato, as you mentioned, crashed in uh, in qualifying. So, uh, what a tough you know opportunity and and Set of circumstances to be thrown towards our rookie drivers, and I, you know, I applaud the IndyCar Series for giving, you know, the rookies and the Texas first-timers an extra half hour to practice. And, and certainly, based on the incidents that we saw, they might have needed it. But man, we were just asking a lot of those guys to jump in those race cars with a lot of new variables, with the cockpit protection, uh, and then certainly being on the racetrack for the first time at a competitive level in, in, in the IndyCar Series for 2020. Uh, to, to do all of that in one day for some of those rookies, it was asking a lot. And as you pointed out, for a couple of them, uh, the bad luck uh, hit early and fit off it. So uh, a lot of those guys are going to learn from it. But, but certainly, you know, I think a lot of folks not necessarily a huge fan of one-day shows for that very reason.
0: Yeah, and and it, and it kind of it almost hinders some of the smaller teams that don't have the manpower back at the shop, or you know, don't have the ability to go through as much simulation or as much data that the multi-car teams do. So it's kind of like a dual-edged sword.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the more cars that you had, I mean, I think Andretti Autosport had six cars there. The more information that you can gather from that single uh, practice session, the better. But uh, but even more so you know, for these engineers and these crew members, when you have a, a full night to sleep on the information that you gathered and you can come to the racetrack the following day on a two or three day race weekend, uh, there's a lot more opportunity to kind of tune on those race cars and dial in those setups. And then also, you know, Scott, there was the added uh, variable that, that due to the COVID restrictions, testing was shut down. So for a lot of these teams, they, they the only opportunity they got to test these cars with the new cockpit protection was at the road course at Circuit of the Americas during the preseason testing before the COVID pandemic really hit and shut everything down. So for a lot of these teams, some had not been to Texas and tested this this uh, new cockpit protection, and ultimately it was uh, it was a variable that that was difficult for a lot of these teams.
0: I was watching uh, the post race with uh, Joseph Newgarden and. Uh Simon Pagino and they were talking about the higher center of gravity and how, you know, it, it does change the feel of the race car a little bit. Uh, but all in all, it seems like the uh, Aero screen really had a successful first run.
3: Yeah, I would think it's safe to say that it, uh, it passed with flying colors from the drivers that I talked to there on side of Texas. And then ultimately, uh, you know, throughout the, the coming week of, of the comments released by drivers on social media or to other, uh, IndyCar journalists, it seemed like that the thing really got positive reviews. The one that we knew was going to be there with the drivers talked about how hot it got inside of that cockpit. Uh, as you close off, you know, those drivers are traveling at 220 miles per hour and usually with an open cockpit, uh, a breeze and cooling is, is not really an issue you close that thing off and, and certainly it become a bit of an issue. It was a brutally hot weekend down in Texas as well. But I think you're going to see these teams in the ingenuity and they're going to bother, borrow technology that you see from, from NASCAR and, and, and in some of the sports car series of how to cool those drivers off. But all the other variables with that cockpit protection, I think, passed with flying colors. I think some drivers were concerned with, you know, the, the curved nature of that cockpit protection. When you throw it on a banked oval at 220 miles per hour, You know, what type of of visual distractions might there be? And uh, from what I talked to, guys like Graham Rahal, Zach Beach all said that uh, it wasn't an issue as well. So uh, they put that thing on there to err on the side of safety to give those drivers a little bit more protection. that's the most important thing. Visually, I'm not sure it's the most aesthetically pleasing thing in the world. It's going to take a little getting used to. But based on the information and the feedback we got from the drivers, uh, I think uh, so far it's, it's been very positive.
0: Well, it's funny. I've talked to some fans about it, and they're like, I just can't get over how it looks. And I'm like, well, when you look at it from the profile, uh, it looks like a fighter jet. When you're looking at it head-on, it looks different. But I said, keep in mind that this is a piece that's been added to an existing chassis. So in the future, when they develop the next generation of car— it, I think will be incorporated much better into the design. So I said th- the most important thing, like you mentioned, it's all about driver safety. Uh, we've had enough loss in racing up to this point. Anything we can do to make sure we keep the drivers, crew members, fans, and everybody safe, I'm all for it.
3: Yeah, no, 100%. And and, uh, and, and you make a great point of, of just slapping that thing on there. It, it may not look as aesthetically pleasing or as racing as you're going to get and you're going to see with the development, uh, uh, the continued development of the technology and new cars and new chassis that, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think it'll become a little bit more aesthetically pleasing. And you bring up a great point. From certain angles, I don't think it looks bad at all. And then you, you see in certain pictures, and it's like, oh, that thing's pretty, pretty ugly. But, uh, but, yeah, most importantly, if it's going to keep drivers safe and, and, uh, and save some lives, that's ultimately uh, what we're all about at IndyCar.
0: As far as the race went, uh, it was an interesting start to the race. Newgarden kind of took off, got out front, and then he started to experience some tire wear. And uh, obviously, uh, Dixon seemed to have a really, really fast car and ended up uh, parking it in victory lane for uh, Chip Ganassi. And and the rest of the field, they have to be, you know, thinking to themselves, oh, man, that's the last person you want to get heads up on the field when it comes to a shortened season and it'd be you know, when you're starting thinking championship.
3: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, historically in Scott Dixon's, you know, really incredible career, uh, quite a few of his championships have been won from summer on. There's been a lot of, lot of uh, you know, circumstances where Scott has started out slow and then has gotten hot through the summer months and made a late charge to win championships. So you're 100% right. That's the last thing that the, the, the rest of the drivers, the competitors that, are going to be in championship contention want to see is is Scott Dixon and that Ganassi crew hitting it right from uh, right from the gun drop of of, uh, race. Number one, he was, he was, was untouchable. I think the only driver that really might've had anything for Scott Dixon last Saturday night at Texas was his teammate Felix Rosenquist, who was charging there towards the end before he, uh, he made a mistake there in lap traffic. You know, the Penske cars were okay. Joseph Newgarden was fast, but you definitely could tell about 25 laps into a 35-lap stint that the handling of that car would go away, and and uh, basically, you know, the, the strategy to keep him up front was uh, was what really ultimately kept him in podium position. Simon Pagino was strong as well, but I just didn't think anyone had anything for Scott Dixon. Uh, he stunk up the show a little bit up up front. There was some good battling throughout the course of the field, but uh, no, Scott was the class of the field, and it was a, a well-deserved victory for him there in Texas.
0: What were the drivers after the race saying about that PJ1 compound, and how much did it hinder that ability for the second groove?
3: Yeah, I think it hindered quite a bit. It Just for whatever reason, the Firestone compound of rubber that they use on the tires is just not the same as the Goodyear rubber, and uh, and it just doesn't mix well that the NASCAR Cup Series uses. And uh, I know for a lot of people, it's like, well, rubber is rubber. Tires are tires. But at, at this level of motorsports, the compound certainly matters with the weight of these race cars. So as you mentioned, they, the NASCAR Cup Series, they put the PJ1 up there to try to work in a second groove. And it, it, it honestly, Scott, it just didn't work for IndyCar. I know that they Texas Motor Speedway did their best to try to wash that stuff off the racetrack. But uh, unfortunately, it just didn't create for the best racing or it didn't create for good Texas racing what we're used to. longtime open-wheel IndyCar fans know that Texas, you just come to expect side-by-side racing, lap after lap after lap. And unfortunately, with uh, the configuration of the racetrack, I'm not a huge fan of what they've done down there in terms one and two of laying down the banking. I don't think it's really helped the IndyCar show. And then, as you mentioned, putting that, uh, that traction compound on the racetrack just didn't work with the Firestone tires. And unfortunately, you saw a lot of one-group racing where guys, the only time they were able to pass, was if they nailed it perfectly and got a strong run out of turn two or turn four, which is just too bad because uh, I've always been a big fan of the exciting race we've seen at Texas, and I don't think we can really sugarcoat the race this past Saturday. It was great that that IndyCar was back in action. I don't think it's necessarily going to be a race that we'll remember anytime soon.
0: Uh, I'm with you there, and and I think part of that goes back to the one-day show. If it's a two- or three-day show, You probably get much more practice laps in. You get some guys that venture up in there and maybe try and get a second groove in. Maybe it lays a little bit more rubber down. You know, just having more cars on the track may have helped that situation. And then we had the situation Firestone was dealt with having to shut down their plants. They weren't really able to design and bring the tires that they would have wanted. So I think it was a combination of both.
3: Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Uh, Firestone was really dealt a a rough hand where, you know, they have to account for the the changes to the race car, you know, the cockpit protection and the added weight, the center of gravity being thrown off where they now have to dial in a tire that they feel like is, is safe for those guys to run on, as well as one that can be competitive as well. And sometimes that's just too hard to do without testing, without a lot of practice. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a situation. I think we're all just glad to see racing back, but uh, ultimately with more practice, with more testing, and as the season goes on, I, I'm, I'm confident the racing's going
0: to improve. Yeah, no doubt. The teams will teams will figure it out without a doubt. You talked about Felix and the tough break he had uh, while we're talking about the Ganassi team. It seemed like Marcus Erickson had a really decent run going for his first run he had it up in the top 10 there, and then uh, I believe they had a fueling issue on the last stop?
3: Yeah, I think that's correct. I think they had a, uh, a pit stop issue, and that was, you know, you knew that that was going to decide the race for a lot of those guys. But the 35-lap spin uh, shortening up how long these guys could go, ultimately any mistakes on pit lane or, or any mechanical issues were really going to do those drivers. So, uh, yeah, tough break for Marcus Ericsson, but but I think gonna have to proved uh, from the get-go here that they've got a pretty good program, as good as Scott Dixon was. And, and I've always been blown away by Felix Rosenquist. I'm a firm believer that he'll probably be the next first-time winner in IndyCar Series competition because he is just so impressive. Ultimately, he was going for the win, pushing hard at the end of that race and, and threw away a chance at, the, at a second-place finish. But uh, still, hard not to be impressed with the Ganassi group
0: couple other impressive runs uh zach veach from andretti autosport just a fantastic run for him did you get a chance to catch up with him at all and uh you know it seemed like it, it, he, he he something flipped the switch there he just seemed much more relaxed when uh, uh some of the post-race comments i saw he he said it all came down to you know when you qualify better and you run up front it makes life so much easier
3: Yeah, I did have a chance to talk to Zach after the race, and and he was thrilled. Texas is a place that I I think he really, really likes. He ran pretty well the previous two years at Texas, showed a lot of speed, but in both years made a mistake getting a little too high at the exit of turn number two, which we saw for some guys on Saturday night, uh, catching the wall and and ruining a chance at a good finish. So I think Zach was just probably more relieved, more than anything, that uh, he had a fast race car and was able to bring home a a career best, time a career best, with a fourth place finish and, and this is a big year for him I mean, this is year three with andretti autosport as a full-time driver and, and in year three he probably in all honesty needs to start showing results like this to uh, to keep that ride and, and continue his indycar future so yeah it was a fantastic run for zach i mean he finishes fourth scott behind scott dixon joseph newgarden and simon Pagano. those are three of the absolute best i'm not sure anyone necessarily thinks zach beach is at the level where he can consistently beat those guys. But if he's right there with them, that's showing the promise that I think Michael Andretti has at
0: him. Yeah, and, and uh, so many times, so many different drivers as you talk to him through the years. You know, you have to run up front. You have to be with those guys. It's such a learning experience for a young driver like him. So it was great to see him up there. Anybody else that you saw that, uh, that you want to talk about that had, in your opinion, surprising runs?
3: Well, I, I wouldn't even call it surprising, but I was really impressed by Connor Daly driving for Carlin Racing. Connor, for the first time in, in his career, is finally a full-time IndyCar Series driver, albeit he's going to be doing it with two different teams. Uh, for most of the season, he'll be driving for Carpenter Racing, who always brings really, really good race cars uh, to the track. But at Texas, he was driving for Carlin Racing, who has had their struggles in recent years. And for, for Connor to end up sixth, I was just blown away. I mean, I, I just really impressed with what he brings to the table, and he was really, really strong. And then Charlie Kimball, who didn't have the results. I felt so bad for, for Charlie Kimball and the A.J. Ford Racing team ultimately not to come away with, uh, with a top-five finish because Charlie was up there and legitimately had the pace all night driving for AJ Foyt to finish in the top five, and ultimately it went away on a last lap accident. But uh, but yeah, Kimball and, and Connor Daly, I thought were both awful impressed to start of the season.
0: Wow, how crazy would have been if Kimball would have ended up on uh, on the podium in Texas, in in AJ's home state? That would have been they would have declared that a national holiday.
3: Yeah, no doubt about it. But I, I think that that team still has reason to be pretty happy. Tony Kanon was was maybe not spectacular. Uh, Charlie's teammate, but but certainly much better than what we've seen from that team. That, that A.J. Foyt team, unfortunately, over the last five, six, seven years has kind of been a back-of-the-pack team. And the fact that they were mid-pack to pretty strong in, in terms of Charlie's case, I think is uh, a really good sign that maybe that organization has finally turned the corner.
0: Yeah, it is a good sign. And the and the competitiveness of the IndyCar series right now, you know, you're not talking about seconds, you're talking about Tenths and hundreds of seconds being the difference between fifth and fifteenth.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, I, I, IndyCar kind of got a bad rap, I think, in the mid 2000s, where I don't even want to call it a bad rap. It was a deserved rap, where every, every race you showed up, it was either a Ganassi or a Penske car winning. And while those two teams are still very dominant, and, and Android Auto Sports can throw in as well, uh, the fact that, uh, that that the rest of these teams on any given week, when they hit the setup, right, can compete and run wheel-to-wheel with those guys, I think does, as you point out, uh, it, it really speaks to the competitiveness of the team. I don't think you look up and down the driver roster. There's not one driver that you point to and say, well, that's a back-of-the-pack driver that, that's never going to compete. And and you couldn't always say that about IndyCar in, in the mid-2000s. So, you know, the the talent level in terms of the drivers is very high, and certainly the teams have backed that up as well.
0: When you look at... The good runs like Zach Veach had, Connor Daly had, Charlie Kimball had, on the flip side of the coin, heartbreak for a couple of drivers. Uh, when I think about that, Ryan hunter Ray, he had a rough start and raced his way back up there. Uh, Alexander Rossi, Graham Ray Hall had issues even getting onto the track to start the race. So tough break for uh, those two.
3: Yeah, and my understanding is, is all those drivers, you know, powered by Honda engines, and, and for whatever reason, uh, there was some sort of electrical ECU problem that the teams just, you know, it sneaks up on them from time to time. And with the limited members of, of crew members that were allowed on pit lane, they weren't able to diagnose that nearly as quickly. So that's why it was kind of a disjointed start. And as you talked about some of those, Ryan hunter Ray did a really good job to rally. I know he ended up in the top 10, but for a championship contender like Alexander Rossi to find himself a couple laps down, Right there, before the green flag even drops, is uh, it's just a miserable start to the season. We know how talented he is. He's going to get hot. He's going to win races this year and stay in championship contention. But uh, yeah, I think it was a bummer for a lot of Alexander Rossi fans that here you are, you're excited for the 2020 season to finally start, and uh, and he's already a couple laps down. Graham Ray Hall with similar issues. So uh, again, just uh, the variables and, and difficult challenges for these teams to start right at the beginning of the year.
0: Well, now we can start talking about the next race, which is going to be on the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with the GMR Grand Prix, that NASCAR IndyCar doubleheader weekend. It's a shame with Roger Penske taking over the Speedway in the series that there's not going to be fans there. Uh, What do you expect from the GMR Grand Prix? Last year it came down to Dixon dominated early, Pagino hit the setup late and came away with the win. Some exciting racing between those two late in the race. And uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to the same thing. I hope uh, over Fourth of July weekend.
3: Yeah, I mean, my, my fingers are actually crossed that we might get a little bit of rain that day because, as you mentioned, the race last year when you threw that uh, that, that variable in there, the wrench at these drivers of having to deal with the wet weather, it actually turned into a fantastic race. I'll, I'll give you two names: it's Simon Pagenaud and Will Power. They're the only two drivers that have won. IndyCar races on the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and that GMR Grand Prix. So uh, for anyone else in the field, if you want to win that race, those are the two drivers you've got to beat. But uh, it is. It's going to be a fantastic weekend. Uh, the first IndyCar NASCAR doubleheader. I, I'm just incredibly bummed that, unfortunately, fans won't be able to uh, be on, on site and watch the racing that weekend. But uh, for the folks that tune in on radio and, and watch on television, they're going to be in for a treat. And I think it's going to be a very cool weekend.
0: Uh, Before I let you go, last question. I want to get an update on how the COVID situation is in the state of Indiana. Here in uh, our area in Pennsylvania, the local dirt tracks and the local asphalt tracks have been able to open up. They're allowing 50% capacity right now, so it's good to get the local guys back on the track. How are things projecting over in the state of Indiana and Marion County where the Speedway's at?
3: Yeah, very similar in terms of Marion County, it's a little bit different, which is why, unfortunately, that, that July 4th window wasn't, been, wasn't able to be met uh, in terms of allowing folks to, to go to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Also understanding that you're going to have massive crowds go to, uh, you know, IMS compared to what you see at local dirt tracks. But the good news is those local tracks are also allowed a, a 50% capacity. Uh, USAC non-wind sprint cars, uh, of course, uh, very big here in the state of Indiana. They've got their midget week coming up. And, uh, and everything's good to go for seven nights of racing. So, uh, yeah, it seems like things are progressing, and I, I think we're all just kind of keeping our fingers crossed that at least by the end of the summer, uh, things will be back to normal. We'll be able to have, you know, full crowds at races at, at the very least and, uh, and be able to enjoy the sport we love so much.
0: Nick Yeoman, thanks for the time. We appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. We love listening to you, Mark Jaynes, and the entire IndyCar Radio Network. You guys do a fabulous job.
3: Really appreciate it, Scott. Anytime.
0: Hey, we appreciate it. We'll uh, look forward to seeing you at the track, hopefully. Thank you. Special thanks to Nick Yeoman for taking time out of his schedule to talk with us. Nick and all of the IndyCar Radio Network folks do a awesome job. You know who else does an awesome job? lou long he's the latest addition to the pittsburgh racing now team joining us on the pittsburgh racing now podcast lou long who covers a ton of local racing for us lou thanks for joining us on the podcast this week uh tell us about your weekend and uh some of the guys who parked it in victory lane and and what we're looking forward to this coming week
4: well it was a great weekend scott and uh we got to uh see three races, uh, three different tracks, two in central Pennsylvania and one back home here in western Pennsylvania. The uh, weekend started out at the uh, Sealands Grove Speedway with a 410 sprint car show special event. Um, and uh, that was won by Fred Re- Freddie Raymer for his uh, first career win at Sealands Grove and also his first win of the season this year. It's been kind of an up-and-down year for Freddie, and uh, they made some adjustments on the car in the shop in the week heading into uh, the race, and the uh, improvement in speed was uh, very, very uh, dramatic. Uh, And then he went out and backed it up on Saturday night at Lincoln Speedway uh, for his first win of the year at Lincoln, and uh, both wins uh, netted uh, the Raymer team over $4,000 apiece so uh, the weekend got off to a real good start for the Raymers and uh, then from uh, Lincoln uh, we came back home and uh, Sunday night I zipped up to Tri-City Raceway Park where uh, I work on Sundays and uh, we had our second event of the season up at Tri-City. It was uh, Again, very well attended, and and uh, b- both by racers and by fans. And uh, the sprint car race there was won by Brandon Spithaler uh, from nearby Evans City, Pennsylvania. And it was a, a tremendous night of racing. Tim Schaefer, who won the opener at Tri-City last week, uh, was at distance this time around. Uh, but he rode home second. Uh Lee Jacobs, uh, let's see, I I missed Jack Sodeman Jr. He was third. Lee Jacobs was fourth. And uh, Dan Kuriger from uh, Beaver, from the Beaver County area, uh, was fifth. So it was a real good night for the spring cars at Tri-City.
0: And it sounds like they had a good turnout as far as total car count at uh, Tri-City as well as Lincoln and Seelands Grove. Sounds like they had a decent night all around as far as not only fans, but car count.
4: Yes, it was a great night. Uh, For the second week in a row at Tri-City, we had 28 Sprint cars in the pits, uh, 13 modifieds, and uh, I believe it was 18 mini stocks and about 14 or 16 pro stocks. and. Uh, the pro stock race was tremendous also. It came down to a last lap, last turn pass, uh, by Rod Lasky to pick up the win in the pro stock. Uh, the modifieds had some great action with, uh, Tom Holden picking up the win in that division. It was a very emotional win for Tom. His, uh, father was a sprint car racer at Tri-City back in the day and, uh, he recently passed and Tom has a tribute to his father on the side of his car and uh, although Tom's father was successful at many venues in western Pennsylvania Tri-City never made it onto his win list and so for Tom to park the car in Victory Lane was very emotional on Sunday
0: night I would think dad was smiling down on that one for him without a doubt
4: for sure, for sure and uh, in the mini-stock division, uh, Dylan Spear picked up two wins. Uh, we had double features for the many stocks because we had an electrical problem on opening night and couldn't finish the mini-stock feature. So uh, they kicked off the program and they concluded it in, in style as well. And and uh, Dylan picked up a pair of wins.
0: Well, that's cool for the kids. They, at least they get to do both races, and uh, nothing beats experience on the track for sure. And w- when you when you have some sort of technical issue that 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 uh, uh, prevents the show from happening, it's great to come back. And who doesn't want to race a doubleheader on a on a night? You know what I mean? Especially if the weather's yeah. nice and you're at the track, uh, you race all night if you can. That's right. That's right. So, what are we uh, looking forward to this week? Uh, I posted an article a little bit ago on the site that uh, Lernerville and PPMs are going to drop the green flags on their weekend or on their season series after being shut down thanks to coronavirus. So, it'll be good to get both of these tracks up and going. Uh, Do you think that will hurt any of the other tracks in terms of? car counts did you see many of the guys that typically run Lernerville or run PPMS running some of the other tracks instead since uh, the other two weren't open yet
4: well uh, it would probably only affect the spring car division at Tri-City uh, because the uh, Lernerville does not run the mini stocks and it does not run the 358 modifieds. so that shouldn't affect the car counts in those two divisions and stock cars. Uh, while Lernerville does have stock cars as part of its weekly program, uh, the pro stocks are not part of the weekly program at Tri-City. It, that's one of the divisions that rotates in and out of the schedule as, uh, a fourth division at Tri-City. And, uh, so we don't have any stock cars this week. The, uh, Fourth class will be the vintage Modifieds coming up this Sunday So that that uh, Learnerville's opening and Pittsburgh's opening will not affect us In that respect uh, Spring cars, most of the spring cars At Tri-City are uh, Western Pennsylvania regulars um, And If uh, Not knowing uh, Who has the budgetary Means to be able to race More often than once a week We'll just have to play it by ear and see um, who chooses to run uh, two nights a week or three. Once uh, once the other Saturday tracks get opened up, and uh, so we'll have to see how see how that plays out. But uh, um, I'm glad to, I, I knew Lernerville was was going to open this week. I hadn't heard the news about Pittsburgh yet, so I'm glad to hear that Pittsburgh's going to be opening up. And it should be a great time for the fans in Western Pennsylvania. Um, Sharon uh, Speedway has yet to open up. Uh, we're yet well, they've had some practice sessions, but they've yet to have any official racing uh, because this, the COVID uh, restrictions in Ohio are more stringent, and uh, we're dealing with here in Pennsylvania. So uh, it'll it'll be a while until until Sharon gets its uh, program going. But uh, it'll be great once the, once the racing gets started in earnest here in Western Pennsylvania. and uh, But for me, um, the plans this weekend uh, looking ahead uh, are probably going to be Williams Grove on Friday. Uh, Williams Grove will be getting back into action with its second show of the season. And uh, Port Royal Speedway, uh port royal has its uh sprint car triple header on saturday nights there will be plenty of sprint cars in the pits 410 sprints 358 sprints and 305s as well so it'll be a great uh great open wheel weekend at at uh port royal and then for me back to work at tri-city on sunday
0: so it sounds like another exciting weekend for you and we look forward to uh your stories on the website we appreciate everything you do for us and we're really psyched about all the local racing getting fired up because the other day was i think the first day since we started the site last year where we actually had the main page on the website were all local racing stories and that's really the goal that i set out when when i started pittsburgh racing now was that i wanted it to be a showcase for the local racers and then you know coronavirus hits and you know we're talking about i-racing and everything but (laughs) local racing so um um, hopefully this is uh the start of it i hope everybody adheres to whatever the tracks want the fans to do in terms of sign a release wear a mask be proactive be smart so we can race all summer long and into the fall and not have to deal with having to go back under that yellow condition or you know god forbid under a red condition the way some of these other areas around the country are starting to you know see another spike in this in this virus we just need it to stay nice and calm the way it's been here in pennsylvania so uh we can continue to go about our business and we can live our lives and and enjoy the things we want to enjoy well
4: that's one thing i think uh, the race fans in pennsylvania can be very proud about uh the all the uh, different tracks that i've been to uh, since the uh, onset of the the covid restrictions uh, the fans have been uh very uh, uh, understanding. They've been very patient with management of the different facilities with the restrictions that have been put in place and uh, it's, it's been a good experience uh, all the way around and uh, hopefully those, that trend will, will continue in the uh, weeks ahead. Uh, just to give uh, the listeners a little bit of a tease, uh, for what's coming up in the very near future. Uh, Central Pennsylvania Sprinter Speed Week will launch into action at the end of this month, starting on the 28th with uh, racing at Williams Grove. And uh, I think I got the date wrong. I think it's the 26th. I'm just going by memory here. But two weeks out uh, starts um, the uh, eight race series in central Pennsylvania uh for the four ten spring covers and uh talking about jumping into the pool uh at the deep end. Uh, that's gonna be a great week of racing.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. I got something in my email today. I put it in the notebook which I haven't put up on the site yet. Uh but the uh All-Star Circuit of champions, I think Port Royal on the twenty fifth, they've rescheduled that or maybe the twenty fourth with a rain date of the twenty fifth. So uh, it's good to see the uh, Tony Stewart's All-Star Circuit of Champions rolling back into the Keystone State as well.
4: Yeah, that's that's going to be a great show. That's uh, the Keith Kaufman tribute race. Keith uh, was a longtime competitor in central Pennsylvania and also on the road with both the All-Stars and the Outlaws and uh, had an illustrious career. And uh, Port Royal started that race a couple of years ago to uh, pay honor to Keith, who lives just up the, up the road, so to speak, from the Speedway and uh, in Mifflin Town. And uh, that'll be, that's great that they were able to put that back onto the schedule because that was one of the events that uh, had to be postponed uh, because of the um, shutdown uh, situation. So to have the uh, Keith Kaufman tribute race be the first all-stars visit through central Pennsylvania is going to be a great one. And, uh, uh, they they've, they've having the, the all-stars and Lernerville Speedway have not gotten together yet on a, on a replacement date for their all-star race that was postponed twice during the uh, shutdown. But, I'm sure officials from both organizations are working together to try to get that uh, back onto the books.
0: I would imagine for, for people like the Outlaws, the All-Star Circuit of Champions, and even some of the sanctioning bodies like Rush, trying to reschedule all of these events, it, it has to be one of the most inherently difficult things to do considering you know, it was such a moving target for April and May and now there's limited dates where you can plug in and the logistics of it would just have to be a nightmare.
4: Oh, it's it's crazy. Uh, the the different moves that uh, the different tracks and organizations have, have made, uh, and to do it uh, on the fly like they have been it, it is just a real, real tribute to everybody. Uh, the All-Stars came off of uh, basically a two-week stint in uh, Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, and uh, they finished up last night in Louisiana, uh, all tracks that uh, were not part of the established All-Star schedule. Uh, They weren't on the radar screen until uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And... uh, the All-Stars uh, were able to put together um, a series. Uh, unfortunately, weather didn't cooperate with and They lost a couple of the shows in Oklahoma due to weather, but uh, it, it was a, uh, a great uh, mini-series that they put together. And Kyle Larson uh, dominated things for a period of time. He won three in a row with the All-Stars and then uh, jumped off the uh, All-Stars bandwagon to go up to Knoxville Raceway in Knoxville, Iowa, and he picked up a pair of wins against the World of Outlaws uh, to establish himself as the hot on favorite for the Knoxville Nationals. And even though it feels like the season is just beginning, we're not that far away from the Knoxville Nationals. The Knoxville Nationals will be coming up in the, in the middle of August. And uh, here, here we are in the middle of June, almost toward the end of June. So, Knoxville's only uh, six, eight weeks away, and uh, for Kyle Larson to be on a roll like he is, it's uh, going to make for an exciting time in Central Iowa.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that. And I think it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be an exciting time here in the next couple of weeks in Western PA because we're gonna have the firecracker, and before you know it, you know, we're probably. A little, a little more than a month out from the Outlaws hitting Lernerville for the Don Martin Memorial. Yep, uh, I
4: don't know if you heard the news about firecrackers. The firecracker is going to be broadcast on CBS television.
0: Yes, I Saturday
4: saw. night is a firecracker. Will be live. Will be live on CBS uh, Sports Network uh, starting at 9 p.m. So uh, history will be made that night.
0: That'll be an exciting night for sure, and, uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to the green flag dropping here around town uh, the next couple of, uh, you know, Friday and Saturday this week. It's been uh, long overdue, and uh, I hope the fans come out and support the tracks because more than anything right now, uh, the tracks need the fans to to put some butts in the seats and and if they have to turn people away because they've reached the capacity limit for whatever percentage they're allowed in that's a good thing.
4: Well, so far none of the speedways has been confronted with that that I'm aware of. Uh, Tri-City had a tremendous crowd on opening night uh, and uh we had a good good crowd last night as well. Um and uh, I'm sure Lernerville, as well as the weather cooperates, I'm sure Lernerville will have an outstanding crowd on Friday night because there's just going to be so much uh, pent up uh, excitement and and uh, desire to for fans and participants to get back out to the track. And uh, uh, that, that's that been true in central Pennsylvania as well. The turnouts there have been have been fantastic. So, uh, everybody needs to get out to the speedways and, and, uh, support their favorite tracks and, uh, get, get out as often as they can.
0: Sounds like a plan. And if they can't get there lou or one of us will be at be at the tracks filing reports check the website every day as we put the notebook up as we learn schedule changes and things that the different series are going to do with the different local tracks and and the extended tracks throughout our area we'll have it up on the website lou i can't thank you enough for all the work that you do for us
4: well i appreciate it scott it's been great fun and uh hopefully uh, the fans enjoy it we certainly would appreciate the feedback and uh, uh we look forward to bringing the stories to them
0: absolutely lou long thanks for joining us on the pittsburgh racing now podcast thank you scott really thankful to have lou contributing to pittsburgh racing lou will be making the rounds this weekend as well so keep checking the website and check out his stories We're also excited that the green flag is dropping this weekend at Lernerville and Pittsburgh's Pennsylvania Motor Speedway. It's extremely important that fans follow the track's guidelines when it comes to COVID-19. Nobody wants to see the yellow or the red flag dropping due to a spike in coronavirus cases. That'll do it for another edition of the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. Extra special thanks to Jamie Little of Fox Sports chip ganassi racing sarah price jade gerst nick yeoman of the indycar radio network and our own lou long for joining us keep up with the latest local racing news as well as the rest of the racing world by bookmarking pittsburgh RacingNow.com. and don't forget to follow us on twitter facebook and youtube thanks for joining us race fans Any use of this podcast without the expressed written consent of Pittsburgh Racing Now is prohibited. I'm Scott Stiller. We hope everybody stays safe and healthy. We'll see you at the races and we will talk to you next week.